All right, so as we, uh, as we continue in the series uh, of the Psalms this summer, we're looking at the second Psalm this morning. Um, so go ahead, if you have your Bible, go ahead and pull that up. If you don't, it's okay, it's in the, uh, it's in the bulletin here. But um, it occurs to me that just uh, one of the reasons the Psalms are so sweet is that they are laced with both honesty and promise. Uh, honesty, because uh, one of the things we see in the psalm are, uh, are observations that are made about the difficulties, not only in our own hearts, but in the world that we live in. It's as if that God is saying to us, hey, I, I'm aware of what is going on in uh, even more profound ways than we are. But at the same time, we see deeply embedded in this clarity and honesty are promises that come from God to us in the midst of all of that. And this psalm that we're looking at, last week we looked at a wisdom psalm, that was Psalm 1. This week we're looking at a royal psalm, and, and, uh, and what, it, what it is doing is shaping God's people to understand that their hope rests on the establishment of a king that God has sent into the world, and that his promises will be mediated to us through that king. It's like our whole well-being and the hope that we have are all wrapped up in the establishment of God's king. That's what we're looking at this morning. That's what we'll be talking about. And so the question for you that I have uh, as we dig into this is, do you know who your king is? And do you trust his promises to you? Let's look together. This is Psalm 2 verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. And Father, we are arranged here uh, under your word. We just heard from it. And so now I pray that, uh, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to understand what you're calling us to understand in this passage, and that you would help me, your servant, to, uh, to be clear and loving and helpful to your people. I pray that we would hear your call, and that you would reassure us with the truth uh, of who Jesus is. Help us over these next few minutes, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a couple of weeks ago, I was having dinner with a few guys uh, that go to this church. Um, you, uh, you know who you are, so I'm not going to 
call you out, but, uh, but we had a fun discussion remembering what life was like uh, just a little more than a year ago in the early stages of the pandemic. Uh, it was like this new way of living was, was imposed on us, or it was, it was, uh, we were called into it because of our circumstances. And so we remembered all of these things that, that we were just learning about during that time, like, uh, like we remembered wiping our groceries down before we brought them into the house. And we remembered how hard it was to learn to, to wear masks and, uh, and, and resisting the impulse of like, you know, reaching your hand out to shake somebody's hand when, uh, when you were around them. That was all, all things that we were remembering. But you know what stood out to me the most just as a pastor during that time? Were the questions that were being asked. I mean, it was like during that time, people were asking questions that revealed the contents of their faith and the contents of their heart and really, um, and really vulnerable ways that can be hard to get at otherwise. I mean, really good questions, like existential, thoughtful questions, like how am I to understand suffering like this? Uh, how, how am I supposed to understand the time that I've given And the question that I was asked most often is, how does a good God allow something like this to happen to a creation that he says he loves? And then almost what always followed was, is he really in charge here? The truth is, is that when we feel pain or when we see pain, almost almost always questions of authority are not far behind. Like, we may be looking for someone to hold responsible, or we, we may be hoping for somebody who's powerful enough to fix what's broken, but when we're afraid, we're wondering who is in charge. And this psalm, Psalm 2, speaks to God's people about how the world calms down again. And, and it's broken up into four sections. What I want to say is there are four voices that come through in this psalm, four, one right after the other, and I'm going to take each one one at a time. And the first thing, we, see, we hear a voice that articulates a problem. So that'll be the first point. We'll talk about a problem, and then we'll see uh, a response, or what I'm calling a perspective. Uh, God speaks from his heavenly throne room and offers his perspective on the problem. And then third, we'll hear of a plan that God has. And then finally, the psalm concludes with an invitation. So problem, perspective, plan, and invitation. I'm sorry for the assimilation there. I didn't do it on purpose. It's just kind of the way it fell together. So. But first, what, we see a problem here. And what's the nature of the problem? Well, it, this is the voice of the world, or the voice of the world, earthly rulers that are, uh, that are speaking here. And what we see are both rebellious motives and rebellious intent. Uh, uh, in reverse order, rebellious intent. It, it, the psalm opens with a concern about rebellious intent. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It says the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And so what we have is this rebellious intent. There is a picture of a coalition of different nations discussing with each other how to unite themselves against the rule of God and against the rule of God's king. That's the rebellious intent that we see here. And the motive that underlies that intent comes next. It's made clear in verse 3. They are saying to each other, 
let us burst their bonds apart and cast away the, 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 their cords from us. And so what you need to understand, like if, if, uh, if an Israelite in the ancient Near East was singing this psalm together, um, what's the, going on there is that there are nations that surround Israelite that, um, that have a relationship to Israel, like what we would call a vassal relationship to Israel. They're literally under Israel's authority. And they're saying, we don't want the responsibility of belonging to your people. The, it feels to us like the responsibility of belonging to God's people outweigh the privileges that come along with it. And so they want to rebel from that authority. In their minds, the responsibilities of belonging to Israel outweigh the blessings of it. That's the motive that underlies their intent. And there's really nothing new to that idea. I mean, that should be somewhat familiar to us and even in our own hearts, right? Because in some ways, that's the struggle of the Christian life. Do the blessings of belonging to Jesus outweigh my desires to live my life as I see fit? I mean, we are asking that question, we are wrestling with the answer to that question every day. I remember a professor from seminary, um, he grew up in Germany, uh, just a really insightful New Testament guy, and he would talk often about this as one of his recurring sin struggles. And this is the way he would articulate it. He used, he used to say that one of the great challenges of his life is resisting what he calls the autonomous inclinations of the heart. And I never thought about it that way. I remember being a young seminary student there thinking, what in the world is this guy talking about? But what he was naming was a struggle that we all have, is that we, we have this desire to self-govern. And, and one of the things that, that, uh, that he was saying to us is that belonging to self and belonging to God are two different things. And in a lot of ways, they're mutually exclusive. Either you belong to God or you don't. And so how does God respond to this problem? This problem of, of rebellion. Well, what we see is this perspective as he hears these conversations. The psalm moves from the musings of these rulers to the voice of God. And, 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 uh, and he articulates his perspective. And one, one, the first thing that we see is that he is completely unmoved by it. In fact, he, he is completely unthreatened. It says, uh, he says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He even holds them in, in derision. In his mind, there is really no part of any plan to usurp his authority that threatens him at all. He's not afraid of it. And look, there is so much that could be said about this point. But I want to at least say this. There is no device. There is no agenda. There is no philosophy. There is no powerful person that threatens God's established rule in his creation. And it's interesting to to me how so much of what we do, so much of our conversations that, that we have or that we hear about are motivated by fear. And one of the things that this psalm is teaching the people of God is that we don't have to be afraid. God is not afraid and that we don't have to be afraid. One commentator put it this way. If you were writing things down, I would love for you to write down this quote. 
This is what he said. He said, God has already set his mind on where the world's story is headed. God has already set his mind on where the world's story is headed. And since the Lord is not dismayed, neither do his people need to be. Well, that begs the question, where in the world is the world's story headed? Well, what we see in this passage is an unflinching commitment to a plan that God has already, that God has already begun to put in play. But he has a plan. He says, as for me, I have set my king in Zion. And here's what I want you to understand here. This is important. God's plan for the attending to the rebellion of, of his people. God's plan for attending to the rebellion and the rebellious seeds in our own heart is through the established rule of a king. That's what we see here. And this is where we begin to hear another voice. The third voice in this psalm is the voice of the king that God is talking about. And the voice of the king begins to articulate promises that God has given to this king. The first promise uses the language of adoption. If you look at verse 7, it says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, did that sound familiar to you at all? Earlier in the service, we read 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is, it is language that's almost directly borrowed from, from what was written when God anointed David, when God made a covenant with David to promise there will always be a king in Israel in his line. And in that, in that text, what we see is God said in his promise to David, I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. That's the picture of the relationship that God has with this king that he sets up in Zion. And he says, I will discipline him as my own son. And my steadfast love will not depart from him. Listen, this is a a profound pronouncement on the king that God is establishing here. um, That resides over this king. And it's not just a pronouncement. It's really a promise that God will never be far from his king. And that in many ways, his king exercises God's powerful authority in all of the world. And that this is coming. And, uh, and, and then the next promise has to do with dominion. It's, it's in verse 8 and 9. The nations will be their heritage and the ends of the earth their possession. What is shaping us to understand is that there will come a time when there is no part, no corner of the earth that won't exist under the established rule of God. Now listen, a little bit of history here. But if you were an Israelite in the ancient Near East, this would have been hard to believe. If you were a neighbor, like if you were a, you know, one of the, under one of these rulers that were thinking about rebellion against God, if you were a neighbor of Israel's and you heard they were singing this psalm, that would have been laughable to you. Because other than David and Solomon... Uh, Israel did not exist with any kind of position of strength in that world. And the idea of the king of Israel being a major player on the global scene would just kind of have been silly. And the only way that this psalm makes sense is if it's shaping the people to look forward to a time when a king would come who could fit these descriptions. And that's why... 
This psalm is quoted almost more than any other psalm in the New Testament because the, because, uh, because the early church understood that this psalm was talking about Jesus Christ himself. A king in the line of David. The son of God can only be one person in history. Listen, the author of Hebrews quoted this psalm, making the argument to show that Jesus is greater than all the angels and all the Old Testament priests. The, in Acts 13, Paul preached Christ's resurrection from this psalm entirely. And the book of Revelation goes to great pains to show in numerous places that this Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. And Jesus, uh, when, oh, and when God, can't miss this, God actually spoke in Jesus' baptism. And you know what he said? He said, you are my beloved son. He quoted Psalm 2. Jesus is the king. When you look at Jesus, you need to understand him. He is the king that God sent to establish his divine rule on whom all of our hopes rest. One of my favorite membership interviews that I ever did, this was a few years ago, was with an 11-year-old boy. And I remember the time, I still remember it. The parents came to me and said, we think our son is ready to join the church and start taking communion. And I said, great, let's set up a, let's set up a time to sit down. And, uh, and normally kids, at the, they're a little nervous when they come, you know, to have this conversation about, you know, what they believe and all of that. And so we just sat there. Uh, I remember his dad was sitting there with us and uh, I, we just were getting to know each other a little bit. And I said, it was when I said... Um, Somewhere along the way, I said, who is Jesus? And it was like he lit up. And his eyes got really bright. And he looked at me and he said, he is my king. I think that melted that little boy's father's heart right in that moment. To hear his son say that he, when he knows Jesus, he thinks of his king. And so let me just ask you this question. When you think of Jesus, what do you think of? Like, how do you think of him? Is he, is he a king with authority? Is he somebody that all of you belongs to? The Bible gives us, and Jesus invites us to understand Jesus in all kinds of different ways. Like, in some way, in, you know, we know him as our older brother. We know him as our prophet, and our priests, we know him. He even calls his disciples his friends. We know him as, our sa- as a savior. We also know him as baby Jesus at Christmas. But one of the things that we're being shaped to understand is that Jesus, when we draw near to Jesus, we are drawing near to a king who operates with royal authority, whose words have the power to rule the entire world. We are given in this passage, and the Bible leads us to believe in both Jesus' imminence, his nearness, that we draw near to him with an easy familiarity, but we should never confuse that with thinking less of his transcendence, his magnificence, his glory, and his greatness. Both of those things exist in the same place in Jesus himself. This is a different kind of king. 
In fact, when we look at the earthly rulers, what we see in Jesus is that he is a completely different kind of king. In fact, in so many ways, Jesus exists for the good of his people. That when Jesus looks at his people, he desires their flourishing. One of the things I like to say is that Jesus looks at you with eyes of love. And before he demands your total allegiance to him, he dies for you. And because he did that, because he purchased you with the cost of his own blood for your redemption, he receives all of you. There's no part of you that doesn't belong to, if you, are in, if you look to Jesus in faith, then all of you belongs to him. In fact, earlier in the service, we called that a comfort. Did you hear that in the confession of faith? What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you again. Do you have a king? Does all of you belong to him? Are there, are there parts of him that you're willing to share or parts of yourself that you're willing to share with him and there are parts of, of yourself that, that you'd rather him not touch? Are you king over your own life or do you belong to a king? Jesus gave all of himself for you and so all of you belongs to him. And the next thing we hear, the next voice that speaks, is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And it's here what we see is an invitation. I'm calling it an invitation. It really could be understood as more of an appeal. But this is a very tender, this is a very gentle voice. After we hear about the power that this king can wield, what we hear is, is a, a gentle, loving, and tender voice given to us. And it wraps with this concluding word to all of the, the rulers or all those with the seeds of rebellion in their hearts. It's offering this, this call to wisdom. It says, be wise. It's as if he's saying, I know what you're thinking, and it's not too late. Be wise. The path that you're on doesn't lead anywhere good. And then we hear a call to return. It's like, come back. It's not too late. Come back. And then it gives us this precious line that really beautifully captures the, the tension between understanding both his, Jesus' transcendence and his eminence. It says, rejoice with trembling. Draw near to God with joy. Draw near to, draw near to Jesus with joy in your hearts even with laughter, but with trembling because you understand just how much power comes with him. There is no refuge from Jesus, but there is refuge in, in Jesus. And listen, I don't want to assume that I know where you are with the claims of the Bible. Some of you know the Lord, some of you don't. The Psalms tend to break us up into those two categories, those who who know Jesus and those who don't. And let me speak to you in turn. For if you don't know the Lord, uh, if, you, if you don't have faith in Jesus, then I want, you, man, I want you to know how happy I am. 
how much, how much I rejoice that you are here with us, and please keep coming back. And please talk with us about these things. These are all, all very important to us. But I want you to know there's an invitation here that stands for you. That the free grace of Jesus is offered for you. And he can be your king. And it's not too late. If you, if you do know the Lord, I want you to understand this is an invitation to peace. Because you have a king who not only wields great power, but also loves you very, very much. How do you respond to that? You rejoice. You rejoice with trembling. Let me close by telling you a story real quick. It's found in the Bible. It's in, out of Acts chapter 4. Uh, a couple of early church missionaries, Peter and John, uh, are uh, at work spreading the gospel. And right after Jesus' ascension into heaven, you see the message of the gospel getting spread, uh, getting spread widely through the work, the ministry of those who walked with Jesus. And uh, for Peter and John, they were, uh, they were sharing the gospel and it landed them in trouble. That their allegiance to their true king actually got them in trouble with their earthly rulers. And they, they ended up in jail because of it. They were imprisoned because of it and all of, the, all of the suffering that goes along with that. And you would think that, uh, that, that they would ask the question, why is this happening to me, God? Are you really in charge here? Because I was doing what you were asking me to do and it landed me in all kinds of trouble. But that's not what you see in the story. Actually, what you see in the story is this path that they took with opportunities, even despite their suffering, to tell people what they knew about who their king was. And when they were finally released, they got together with their friends and they told them what happened. And the story says when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And you know what they sang together? They sang Psalm 2. These were a group of people who knew who their king was. And they knew there was no refuge from him, but there was true refuge in him. Let me pray. Jesus, you aren't only the true king, but you are a great king. And in our best moments, we're so grateful to be yours. Will you help us? Will you help us in faith? Will you nourish us in the truth that in you there is real strength and that we have nothing to be afraid of? Will you help us as we wrestle with these claims? And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to make us the faithful people that you call us to be. I pray these things in your name, our Savior, Jesus. Amen.